The following audio is from Crossroads Church, a church in Lincoln, Nebraska, centered around building genuine community through authentic faith. More info can be found at lincolncrossroads.com. Amen. Amen. You know, even, even to just pray, right? We've heard a lot of verses of Scripture, a lot of the Bible that, that talk about things like turning mourning into dancing and mourning into joy and, and joy like for sorrow and those types of things, right? You know, there's, the, the Bible talks a lot about that very concept, going from negative to positive emotion, right? From, from hurt to health, right? And I, I just want to read a few of those. I, I think they're encouraging, like this is, these are the promises that we have in scripture. Here is, regardless of what your day looked like, your week looked like, your, your month has looked like, your year has looked like, like here are the promises of scripture. Psalm 30 verse 11 says this, you've turned me from my mourning into dancing. I love that picture. Jeremiah 31, 13, for I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I love that transaction kind of deal. That's what we have in Christ. Like, like you got sorrow? Here, let me trade you. I got something better. I got joy. Let's, let's, let's trade. You guys want to trade? John 16, go to the New Testament. Jesus himself says this, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, while the, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Isn't that an awesome promise of scripture? You know, and, 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 and you ever hear that though, while you're in the middle of grief or in the middle of mourning or in the middle of sorrow and a well-meaning friend said that to you and you just gonna be like, shut up. Anybody ever, let's just be honest, right? Sometimes you're in the middle of the sorrow and someone's like, hey, turning sorrow to joy. You're like, I'll get there, but I'm not there today. So just back off. Maybe I'm the only unholy one that would ever think anything like that. But here's what I've come to realize. Is that this process from sorrow to joy, from mourning to dancing, is oftentimes just that, a process. Have you ever noticed, I mean, there are moments, don't get me wrong, there are moments that God supernaturally just touches your heart and changes heartache and just boom, puts you on top of the mountain. But most of the time, right, for those of us who've walked with Jesus for some time, would you not agree that that, that, that motion from, from mourning to dancing is not necessarily in the blink of an eye? That God walks us through a process to discover the joy, the dancing, the hope on the back end of that joy and sorrow. Well, here, here's the thing. We, we, we come to a, a story in Acts that, that I, I think is going to be great. Like, I hope someday when I'm in heaven, I get to run into some people who experienced this and hear all of the firsthand stories that, that must have been going on. This was chaotic time, but in our, our text today, it happens in eight verses. It happens very quickly. Um, but there is so much going on in this text. And what we see, and, and I want you to look for this, what we see is, is a story is of, of the church going from sorrow to joy in eight verses. And so we're going to take our time today and walk through that and see what we can learn in this process, in this journey 
from sorrow to joy. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 8. Got in your Bibles, you can turn there. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 8, and it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. Now let's remember this. Saul, this is also, also known, will later be known as the Apostle Paul. He's there. Stephen was just murdered because he declared that Jesus is the Messiah. Saul was there giving approval to his murder, and then it goes on. The story picks up. And that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles, so everybody, everybody except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and he put them in jail. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So what I want to look at today is is this journey from sorrow to joy. Now, in this journey, there, there, we're going to look at a couple different things, okay? We're going to look at three steps in this journey from, from, from sorrow to joy because there's, there's, some, there's some things that we need to do. There's some, some actions that we need to take. But intermixed in this is, is there's also gonna, we're also going to look at three truths. So if you're taking notes, you can kind of put a line down the middle. We're going to look at three steps and we're going to look at three truths. Because in order to take these steps, there's some certain understandings that we have to be able to have, right? Maybe you could say, I should preach this in two sermons, but I think it's going to work together. Let's, let's give it a shot, okay? Three truths, three things that we need to understand in order to, to move through this journey. So we're going to start with this truth number one. Truth number one, attacks attacks will come. And everybody said, amen, right? (laughs) Attacks will come. It says in verse one, on that day, a great persecution broke out. Now, here's a question that I've, I've seen asked, and I've, I've asked this myself a little bit. And this question here, how do I know if what I'm a if, I, if what I'm facing is an attack of the devil, anybody ever had that? Maybe, maybe you asked that question directly. Maybe you had the thought come through your mind. How do I know if what I'm facing is an attack of the devil? Now, I'm going to answer that question with another question. How much does it really matter? Now, some of you, you spiritual warriors, you're a little bit offended and and bristling a little bit by that question, but let me just explain what I mean, okay? The question assumes, right? How do I know if I'm facing an attack of the devil? The question assumes that the devil, and and let me me just clarify. When I say devil, listen, the devil is not omnipresent like God. He can't be everywhere at, at once. He's a created being that can be in one place at a time. So the devil has probably, you've never probably had a personal encounter with the devil. There's like 8 billion people in the world, odds are, He's otherwise elsewhere. However, um, he's got a bunch of guys that work for him that we call demons, right? This is a real thing. There's a spiritual reality in our world. And that group of 
demonic beings hate your guts because God loves your guts, <laughs> right? He doesn't really care about you, but he knows if he, if he really wants to stick it to God, he's going to stick it to God's kids. And so he's coming after you. And so when I say devil, I just mean him and all his demonic, uh, devil, the enemy, demon, all, we're all, we're all just going to use that ex, uh, interchangeably, right? So here's the deal. To ask the question, how do I know if, 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 if what I'm facing in this attack of the devil, it kind of assumes that my life in general is neutral and the devil is just kind of leaving me alone. But every once in a while, he poses a specific attack on this particular place, and now he's coming after me, okay? It kind of assumes that kind of like, hey, this is an attack of the devil, which means everything's kind of like neutral and good. But then he's going to poof, pounce right here. Now, hear me out. This is why I don't think it matters that much whether or not this is a direct attack or it's just the result of a broken world because the enemy of your soul will use every loss, every setback, every stubbed toe, every divorce, every war, every famine, every depression, every sickness, every natural disaster, every opportunity to create distance in our relationship with the Father and distance in our relationship with his family. So, the question we should be asking is not, is this a spiritual attack or is this an attack of the devil? But the question we should be asking is, is it working? So this might be a Job moment and the devil is coming at me. Or it might be the result of the brokenness of the world or sin that has polluted mankind. I don't know what the cause of it is. It doesn't really matter. The question is, am I allowing this setback, this trouble, this attack, this hardship, am I allowing it to create distance between me and my heavenly father and me and his sons and daughters? Now, I understand if we really want to kind of isolate things, help us pray with specificity. So I'm not saying it's completely, I understand all that. But for the most part, is it working? Because he will use everything, whether it's an attack originated from him or an attack originated from the fall of man. He will use everything to create distance in our relationships. Now, this is something we can see on a, on a global perspective and also on a, on a personal perspective. You see, we can look at the church as a whole. In fact, we look at it in the story. We saw the church in Jerusalem, which is essentially the church of Jesus was mostly isolated to Jerusalem. We go, look at this attack. This is an attack on the church. Like literally their church members were being attacked. I want you to think of what this would have been like. It says great persecution broke out on that day. And this is what Saul was doing. He was literally going door to door, knocking on doors, Hey, are you a follower of Jesus? All right, you're under arrest. Now listen, you're under arrest. That that's, is mild compared to what was going on. He dragged them. He wasn't reading anybody the Miranda rights, okay? He was grabbing them by whatever they could, dragging them, locking them up, and dragging them into prison. Not really concerned about human rights at this time. 
Could you imagine? We, we read the story so quickly. Could you imagine what is happening right now? One of, one of the most well-known church leaders in that day was just publicly executed for everything that you believe in. And now they're knocking on doors systematically, neighborhood by neighborhood. I don't think they were just knocking. So you either deny Christ or you go to jail or you move. And, and, and all of Jerusalem, all the believers, everybody that says everybody at the 12, they packed up whatever they could carry. They left. They left their unbelieving families. They, they, they went wherever they could. They left their friends. They left their neighbors. They, they left their jobs. They left their homes. Like they're trying to sell their home real quick in order to, no. They just left. This was not a, is this an attack or not? <laughs> this was a drawn up attack on the church. You know, and I hear a lot of people today who, who, who want to take that, and, and, and there's, there's a time and a place for it, don't get me wrong, who we, we, we want to just like step back for a moment and take the 30,000 foot view of the church today, and let me just evaluate what I see, and, and we'd go, man, look at the enemy's attack on the church today. And we go, oh no, what are we going to do? Oh my gosh. And we begin to see like this, but look at, look at, look at how this is going here and this is going on. And, and, and we look at the condition of the church, some of us, and it begins to fill us with fear and anger and anxiety. Guess what happens when we do that? <laughs> that fear and that anger and anxiety, you know what it does? It causes, it, it becomes a wedge in our relationship with God. We gotta be careful. I'm not saying there's not a place for evaluation, self-evaluation, evaluation of even the church from where we're sitting. But here's the truth, number two. Jesus' church is doing great. You know why I can say that? Because he said it is. Jesus himself said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, in our text in verse three, it says this, but Paul, sorry, but Saul began to destroy the church. Now, when I read that, 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 that hit me funny. And sometimes scripture hits me funny and I dig into it and I'm like, nope, that's just funny. I got I to gotta work through that. And sometimes I look at it and, and so maybe it's my own interpretation of, or, or understanding of the English word destroy. But when I hear the word destroy, it has like a, a finality to it that I'm like, that doesn't seem right. Okay. So I dug a little bit and I, and I found out this, that the Strong's Concordance, that word that's translated into began to destroy the church that word in the Greek is translated this way, or here's the definition, to treat shamefully or with injury, to ravage or to devastate. Now, if you've got an ESV Bible or an NASB um, Bible, it translates it this way, but Saul began ravaging the church. And I think that's a better translation. Um, maybe you could say that Saul began destroying, but he wasn't ever going to finish destroying the church. And I think that's something we got to remember. Like ravaging is a better term because it means like he can, he can make a mess. And he was. 
Like literally definition, ravaging the church, like as in the church, not like the church as this big general idea, but like individual members of the church. He was ravaging the church. But we've got to remember that regardless of what it looks like from my perspective, his perspective is bigger and better. And that he says the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Do we trust that? Imagine... I mean, I don't know. I don't want to read things into it that's not there, but imagine if, let's put it this way. Imagine if this were to happen today, I could imagine some things that would, would take place. Imagine somebody gets executed for believing in Jesus, and then the government begins knocking on doors, going house to house, and arresting people, okay? I think we would have probably responded differently, or maybe they did a little bit, and we don't have all the details. I don't know. But I wonder if there's somebody sitting back going like, why is everybody leaving? We gotta be the church, right? I mean, I mean, think about it. Would this not happen today? I am sure there are mixed reviews, right? They're going like, man, people are getting saved like crazy. People are getting healed in the streets. Like miracles are taking place. Demons are being cast out and we're gonna run away right now. No, we gotta be the church that stands. I don't know if it happened or not, but it probably would today. We begin pointing fingers at people who begin to make different choices than we did. I don't know, maybe the 12 got up and said, no, everybody leave town, we're going we're gonna to hold down the floor. I don't know exactly how it happened, but I, but I can imagine at a decision like this and everybody leaves, that, that if this were to happen today, we'd have so much finger pointing. Wouldn't we? Wait, you're going to do it this way? Here, for those who, who do tend to look the, at that 30,000 foot view and become anxious and nervous and concerned about the condition of the church, I love, I love sports analogies. I, I, I've played a lot of basketball. I've been in a lot of like halftimes down a bunch of points. If you've ever been in a halftime in a locker room down a bunch of points, there's a general vibe that's typically going on. Postures are typically something along the lines of head between the knees. And uh, attitude is terrible. Uh, energy level feels de- like depleted and coach comes into the room with a goal almost every coach you might have a different way to execute it but every coach is going to come in with a goal that coach has to find a way to remind his team that they can still win now if we look at that from a spiritual perspective a church perspective listen There's many of us who look at like, from wherever vantage point you're looking at, we look at the church and then we stick our head between our knees because we don't understand why it looks the way that it does. Our posture is low, our attitude is low, our energy is defeated. And if that doesn't change, when you get back on the court, you're going to be worthless. And that 20-point lead is going to turn into 40 in a moment. But listen, church, can I remind us of something? We win. And there's some of us who just need to be reminded, listen, let the coach coach and you play. When we spend more time judging the condition of the church than living out the commission of the church, friends, we're in trouble. 
But even so, like the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we don't have to worry. If we sit from this 30,000 foot view and judge the what we see from our vantage point, we forget that God has a better one. And I believe one of the greatest causes of anger and fear and anxiety that we oftentimes feel is simply because we are carrying things that are not supposed to carry. Let the coach coach. And let me just run the place. Let God worry about the condition of his church. And let me just worry about being the church. Make sense? All right, now let's get to the personal side of things, okay? I just... I, just, I couldn't help but read Acts 8 and be like, man, I wonder if there was all this finger pointing. Because that's the other thing that happens in a, in a losing locker room. If you've played sports and been there, what happens almost inevitably, whether it's external or just internally felt, that person, and that's what we do as a church, right? We're losing and it's all your fault. Nah, but a team that understands the win says, hey, it doesn't matter why we're here but I know what I got to do now. Let's go. All right. Here's the deal. Let's jump into the next. Let's, let, let's make this personal. Let's bring it home. This is where it really matters more, right? On this personal view, attacks will come, okay? Let's bring it down to personal. Attacks are going to come. Setbacks happen. Losses happen. You don't get the promotion. You lose the job. You lose the house. You lose the loved one. Loss comes. And I'm just reminded that Jesus, right before the cross, I love the timing of this. I'm talking hours before his arrest. He looks at the 12 and he says, in this world, you will have trouble. Like it's coming quick. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He's like, I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to be hard. But in, in that same verse, he says, in me, you have peace. Right in the middle of the trouble, right in the middle of the heartache, right in the middle of the setback, there's peace available in me. You know, I think one of the reasons that we struggle so much with trouble, <laughs> heartache, setback, loss, is because we live in a very comfortable society. There's this subconscious expectation that things are always going to get better. So the moment they don't get better, it's already a loss. Right? It looks like this. I expected to be at such and such place in my career by this age or by this point, and I'm not there yet. You actually haven't lost anything, but you got to process that as a loss because it was an unmet expectation. Like there's, there's things and, and hurts and like anything that doesn't go good, but I want you to think about this. See, we, we live in a place where the default setting is everything ought to be good all the time. And by good, I mean relatively comfortable. And so therefore we ask the question, when something doesn't go as planned, we ask the question and we love this. And this is the question of affluent societies. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, right? Not all societies ask that question. You know, there are certain tribes and villages, war-torn cities around the world that are born into greater hardship than you will ever experience in your entire life. With less opportunity, less hope than you have on the worst of your days. There are people who are born into slavery live their whole life in slavery and die into slavery. There are people who are born into poverty, who are born into war and live with, 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 with blood and death and horror every day of their lives. 
with more joy than we've ever tasted. Because in their vantage point, life is just hard. And therefore, every good thing is a little kiss from heaven. Every time a toddler crawls up in your lap and puts a little peck on your cheek, that's a gift from God. Every beautiful sunrise and sunset is a reminder of the majesty of the Creator. Every good thing is a gift from God. And yet we sit on the, on the entitled side of things and go like, if it's not comfortable for me, then God must be angry or the devil must be attacking or maybe life just hard. You know, um, I'm going to say something and don't jump to conclusions, please, but I kind of enjoy watching my kids struggle sometimes. <laughs> <clears throat> My kids are like, what? Okay, no, for real. I enjoy watching my kids struggle sometimes. Like, I remember watching Aubrey, like she's my first, right? Watching her crawl to an outlet. This sounds, oh, some of you, okay, I don't care what it sounds like. It's just, like, crawling towards an outlet, like, almost with a, oh, this is going to be, like, ah, oh, this, I get to teach her something. And she'd start to crawl towards it and start to reach and flick her hand and she'd start crying. I'm not mean, Okay. I wanted to watch my kids struggle because struggle brings growth. In fact, I did the same, not the same thing, but I did something similar to her just recently. I made my 15-year-old daughter change a tire on a cold, wet, dark night in our driveway. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's a couple times, and she wasn't putting a donut on. She was putting the, taking the spare off, and the spare was actually a full tire. So she was taking the spare off and putting a, the, the original one that's now filled, which is now in the rim and heavy, back on. And there was one point in time, she's down, and I, I didn't help her at all. I just told her what to do and coached her. And so she's, on, she's down there and knees all wet and stuff and, and trying to figure this out. And then she's picking up this tire and trying to get it up on the bolts. And I'm like, okay, I should probably lend a hand. And then I'm like, nah. And then so I just, uh, so I just watched her struggle with it. And she eventually got it on there and, and talked her through tightening and letting it back down and the whole thing. But here's, here's why I enjoyed watching my kids struggle, because I'd rather watch her struggle in the driveway so that she'd have confidence on the side of the highway. What happens, I remember seeing friends in college whose parents just like did everything for them and they didn't know how to do their laundry or boil water. And I'm just like, your parents ruined you. And then it, and then it, comes, and then it comes to our spiritual faith. And we cry every time we have to, we question God every time he has us change a tire in the driveway. And we wonder why he's so mean when we have to boil our own water for our macaroni and cheese. Not every hard thing is an attack. Sometimes it's just training. The question is, are you allowing the enemy to use it for his good? To create distance between you and your father and you and his sons and daughters or or you're allowing it to draw you into your father. Hey, life's hard. Jesus said it would be. 
Attacks come, and that's not to minimize, right? The attacks come, and they hurt. And, and, and honestly, so often, it means that something has been taken from us, and that's not, I'm not minimizing it. I'm not saying pull yourself up by your bootstraps. In fact, it leads us to step one. Step one is this, mourn the losses. We have to mourn the losses. Here's the truth. The attacks are going to come. Here's the truth. Uh, God's church, Christ's church, Jesus' church is doing just fine. But the reality is those attacks and those losses hurt. Listen to what it says. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply. I wish John, I wish Acts 8, 1 through 8 was like two whole chapters. I'd love more detail. I'd love more detail of this story. What it was like in the church when all this was taking place. And they, they leave tons of detail out. But they don't leave this detail out. They mourned deeply. In, 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 our, in our comfortable approach to life where we expect comfort in any bad or hard thing, not even bad, any hard thing is, is somehow God leaving us. What ends up happening is when we do face hard things, there's like this internal expectation that we have to be okay. Like look at everybody else, they're all okay. I go to church and everybody's smiling, look at all the smiling people at the doors. Hey, smiling guys, looking good. They must be okay. So I've got to be okay. So what do we do? And I think, I think the human nature, at least in our society, we all do this, but I think it's probably even worse in the church than outside of the church. Because we really feel like, like I've, got, I've, got to, I've got to have it together. So we take loss and we go like, God is my strength. And then we're hurt. And then we just pull it all together. And what happens is on the inside, we never process. We never grieve. We never mourn the losses. And so we carry inside of us these wounds that are never addressed. Listen, walking closely with Jesus doesn't make us invincible. Jesus died. Already in the story, the apostles have been flogged. Jesus has been killed. We get it. It doesn't make us impos- uh, uh, invincible. Listen, it also doesn't make us emotionally invincible. Remember John eleven thirty five. Lazarus died. What did Jesus do? He wept. Attacks are going to come. We got to recognize it. We got to take it in stride. The church is doing just fine. God is in control. I don't have to worry about any of that. But the reality of the day today is we face losses. Just because we know they're going to come doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. You see, we're familiar with this in certain instances, right? When, when there's a death, you might hear somebody say, oh, I didn't get the chance to say goodbye. Or there's a, a harsh breakup and you might say something like, I never got closure. What, what are those statements about? They're about this, the need to process the loss. It's about this, this uh, needing to give myself time to come to terms with the reality of the loss I faced. And yet somehow in our Christian world and in our tough guy mentality, we like forget this reality. 
that we've got to be okay with giving ourselves a minute to grieve something that was taken from us. We have to learn to give ourselves permission to feel the pain, to cry, to grieve, to mourn. Otherwise, we end up carrying that stuff with us through our lives. And you know what happens most instances? Is it does eventually come out in ways that hurt us and hurt the people we love. Listen, God, God doesn't just want to save you. He wants to heal you. He says all things are new. That means your heart. We, we know that we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we give it all to him, but so often we, we, we keep some of these wounds and these hurts and these losses, we keep them to ourselves because we're not sure he can handle it. Let me tell you, he can. I mean, Hebrews tells us that, that, that he identifies with, with us and, and that he, he experienced everything just like we have, and yet he didn't sin in the middle of it. In other words, he can, he can handle your hurts and your losses. That might be something as simple as journaling, being able to just write out, this is what's on my heart for some. Some people, it's, just, it's, it's verbally letting go, just talking through all of these things. For a lot of us, part of this is forgiveness. Whether we forgive ourselves because the loss we, we, we endured is maybe on us, or maybe it's forgiving somebody else who, who took something from us, but, it, but it's all birthed in prayer in the presence of God. But can I just say this? Listen, some of us, I, I know I've said this before, but I, I, there's so much stigma around going to a counselor, and I think they're just silly. I, I love the fact that the church in general, from my vantage point, is, is, is kind of fighting against this thing. Like God has given us, <clears throat> God has given the body of Christ and it says to bear one another's burdens. And sometimes that's just like the friends that God has placed in your life. But there's sometimes your friends don't have the tools and the experience to help you process in the way that you need to do so. So God has given some people to give their lives to be able to help others in the body of Christ bear one another's burdens. You might need to talk to somebody. All right? Step one, if you want to move from mourning to joy, from sorrow to joy, you don't just skip over the hard things. The journey goes through mourning. It goes through grief. It goes through the sorrow, not around it. Okay? So here's the second step. So we, we, we process this. We, we heal Allow God to heal us. And that's, again, a process. But then listen to what it says. And this is really the, the, the turning point in the text. Verse four. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. This is incredible. Think about this. One of your best friends and respected peers has just been murdered for their faith. You just left your home your friends, your job, and most of your possessions behind. You're now fleeing for your life. You've suffered some loss. There's some grief and mourning that you're probably still working through. And this is what it says. Everywhere they went, they did not stop preaching the word. The only way that can happen is if you've allowed God to do some healing in your life. 
Maybe not complete and full, but at least started the process. Now here, here's the deal. Num- step number two, I'm going to call it this. Step number two, talk about Jesus. Step number two, talk about Jesus. Now here, here's something that's funny. Like over the years, the church has used different language to communicate the same thing, right? We talk about being a witness, which I'm going to keep using that language because it's so rich and prevalent in Acts. It's been fun to like relearn about what this being a witness is all about. But we've used terms like evangelism. We've used terms like discipleship or making disciples. We've used uh, more modern in order to get away from that. We talk about being missional, right? All these kind of things. Let, let, what, what do you say we just find new language for this and just really like simple it down to what it's about? Let's just talk about Jesus, Right? Let's, let's, let's leave the mystery out, like what evangelism or missions or, 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 or witnessing or any of it should, talk, would, should look like. Let's just, what if we just got back to the bare roots of it, right? Like, let's just say, let's talk about Jesus, right? Here's, here's, here's these disciples. Here's these people, they're new converts to the faith. They've just had everything taken from them. And everywhere they went, they just talked about Jesus. They just, they, just, they, just, they just spread the word. They just, they just talked about it. Now, now here's the deal. There's, there's been a part of me, and I've thought this before, like, man, it'd be easy to preach back then. Like the whole society and all of Judea, like the, the whole area, they were all Jews believing in the same God waiting for the Messiah that you're just declaring has already come. Like what an easy sell. Except for the fact, if you tend to forget, is that in order to, to sell out to that, you're turning your back on everybody, most everybody else in your life and the history and the traditions and everything that you've ever known before. Okay, maybe it's not as easy as it sounds. But there's a part of me that thinks that. Man, how easy. They were already asking the question, where's the Messiah? And all you had to do was answer the question. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus is the answer to every big human question that we've ever asked? You know what they do with, with missionaries who are training to be a missionary? You, you learn, here's what you have to learn. You have to learn to understand the culture. It's critical. You have to understand your culture because you need to understand the culture so that you, then you can then translate, if you will, contextualize the gospel into the culture of the people that you're speaking to. In other words, you need to find the question that they're asking and present Jesus as an answer to that question. It's not manipulative. It's not washing down the gospel. It's not any of that. Because think about it. The purpose question in life. What's the purpose of life? Jesus is the answer. The meaning question. What's the meaning of life? Jesus is the answer. What, what's uh, like uh, the, the, the longing for relationship? Jesus is the answer. Whatever longing of the heart the human has ever desired, Jesus is the answer. Friends, when the, we might be suffering loss or we might be coming out of something hard, but here's the mission, here's the calling, here's what we're asked to do. Find the questions that the culture is answering and go present Jesus, as, or the culture is asking, go present Jesus as the answer to the question. You got a friend who's looking for purpose. You have a friend that's looking for healing. You have the friend who's looking for meaning. You have the friend who's looking for a relationship. You have the friend that's looking for fill in the blank. I'm telling you, Jesus is the answer. So if we want to move, this is what they did, from grief to joy, from sorrow to joy, first we've got to process through. We've got to grieve the loss, but then we've got to do this. And maybe this seems unrelated, but just, just bear with me. Just, just track with me here. 
The next thing they did is they talked about Jesus. And the only way they're going to be able to do that, because here's the deal, when we, when we harbor those hurts and wounds, I'm going to go back to point one here, step one. When we harbor those, those hurts and wounds, it creates insecurities that put up walls. And when we live with walls up, we are incapable of seeing other people the way Jesus sees them. The walls that insulate us also protect others from us. Okay? As Jesus begins to heal those wounds, those walls begin to come down. And now I can see other people like Jesus sees them. And now I can talk to Jesus. I can, I can hear the questions that they're asking in the regular language of life. And I can present Jesus in a way that they're ready to receive it. Does that make sense? We've got we to gotta mourn the losses. We've got to talk about Jesus. And here's number three. Step three, expect the power of God. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. You know, sometimes I think we're afraid. What if God doesn't work supernaturally? Does he still do this kind of stuff today? Listen, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, God was a healer, he, and he still is a healer, and he always will be a healer. But you know that the power of God works in ways that are more than just healing paralyzed people? Like, you realize that he's a multifaceted, powerful God. Like, we know that, right? And sometimes I'm like, whoa, what if, what if, like, what if, what is God going to do? Listen, why are you convinced that Jesus is God? Let's just start there. Why are you convinced? What have you seen God do for you? What is the thing? Why are you sitting here today? Are you just like, man, I have nothing better to do. Why are you here? What has God done for you? Why are you convinced that Jesus is God? Now, let me ask this. Do you have faith to believe that what he's done for you, he's going to do for your neighbor? That what he's revealed to you, he's going to reveal to your coworker? Do you have faith to believe that the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, that he has just lavishly poured out on you, that he also wants to pour that out on your unbelieving family members? Do you have faith to believe? I think sometimes we think that God is this like super boring, sterilized God who just wants to see if we can logically explain the divine so perfectly that we will convince all of the greatest skeptics on earth of the divinity of Jesus. And there are some people called to that. But maybe, maybe you once lived with absolutely no hope in your life. And God opened your eyes to the purpose, his purposes, and now you live with hope every day. Maybe your calling is not to master apologetics, but rather just share the hope of Jesus with the hopeless. How have you seen God move? When you talk about Jesus, talk about that. But here's the thing, so often we expect pushback instead of expecting power. Expect God to accompany your faith with his power. It's not your power, it's his. So you walk in faith and you trust his power. 
Now, here's something that I think is really cool. You know, back then, like people, Peter and Paul and different, even Stephen, Philip, they went to the streets and they were healing tons of people. And people were seeing these healings and were getting, getting saved. And people were coming to Jesus in, in droves. Now, now, could God still do that today? Yeah. If, if somebody walked into a cancer ward and sent everybody home, yeah, it'd make the papers. And I bet people would come to Jesus. Maybe he'll do that sometime. Maybe not. I, I know of one person who was paralyzed. And three months later, he was walking. And in his rehabilitation... He had to have two nurses assist him because he was improving so fast that it looked like insurance fraud. God heals people. I don't know if anybody got saved from that. Some, maybe somebody did. But you know what Jesus says? If we're going to talk about power, you know what Jesus says? Again, I say all this to say God is still a God who works in the miraculous, in the supernatural. But listen to the words of Jesus in John 17. As he's praying to his father right before he goes to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, my prayer is not just for, the, for my apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. It says this, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and that I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen, you want to know the evidence you want to see evidence? The evidence is in the unity. And he says that will lead to people getting saved. He goes on, I've given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and will love them even as you have loved me. Sometimes the power of God flows through miraculous healings. Sometimes the power of God flows through unity. I don't know what he's going to do next, but I know this. He's going to pour out his power one way or another in conjunction with our faith to see more people coming to Christ. Friends, we got to start praying like we believe people will get saved rather than wishing that they would. I'm guilty, guys. I'm guilty of that. Dear Jesus, would you please, would you please maybe sort of um, bring my unbelieving family member and neighbor to Jesus? Would you maybe, like if you, if you had the time, could you, like, I... What if we started praying like a church that had faith, like that, that the church was actually going to accomplish through the power of Jesus exactly what he said the church was going to accomplish, and that is make disciples in all nations? What if we began to pray like that God was going to do something? What if we began to pray that, that next year right here, this church would be twice as large, the church of Lincoln would be twice as large as it is today, not because believers started to switch churches, but because unbelievers found Jesus? What if we began to pray and expected the power of God to move one way or another? Based on everything I read in Scripture, I believe God responds to prayers like that. Now maybe you're like, where's the joy thing happening in this? Like, I'm ready to get to the punchline. <clears throat> Truth number three. Joy flows from new life. 
Verse eight, so there was great joy in that city. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of Jesus. It says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before him. What was that joy? It was a new life that he was purchasing for you. When a baby's born, who has more joy? The baby or mom or dad? Parents, all day. I remember the day I gave my life to Jesus, the day I prayed that prayer, it was really cool. But it does not even compare to the joy that I've experienced in, in walking somebody else into new life in Christ. You see, here's the deal. We get wounded. We experience loss. We experience setback. We don't deal with it. Insecurities rise up. We build walls. We don't see the people around us. We keep quiet. We don't expect God to move. We never taste and see of his goodness because the greatest joy that God designed for us to experience is the joy of new life. You want joy, it's not in changing the circumstances in my life. It's getting to work in the life of others. You want to taste and experience joy. You want the life of Christ to come alive in you. Come on, friends. We got to deal with the wounds in our own heart to find healing because God has work for us to do. You want to find true joy, find somebody who needs Jesus and stick on them till they find him. And your joy, your, your sorrow, I'm telling you, will turn to joy. You won't be able to help. You won't be able to keep the joy at bay when you begin to see new life in Christ. So friends, sorrow to joy is a process. Not easy. A little scary. Dealing with our own attacks and wounds. But the mission and the future of the church depends on it. And if you don't have the faith to go there yet, your own joy and health depends on it. We go back to those promises that we started with. You've turned my mourning into dancing, my mourning into joy. He gives joy for sorrow. Your grief will be turned to joy. But friends, we gotta walk it. We gotta walk the process. Will we allow God to heal the losses and heal the wounds that we are holding onto so that we can get busy doing what he's called us to do? God's future for his church is bright. And there's joy in this journey. God, we thank you. We praise you. That God, no matter what loss we've faced, setback, we're dealing with wound that's been inflicted on us. God, you are our healer and you have a job for us. 
It's really not all that hard. It's, not, it's really not all that complicated. God, we just, want to, we just want to talk about you. Just talk about you with our friends. Talk about you with our, our, our unbelie- the unbelievers in our life. Talk about you. Shoot, some of us need to talk, start talking about you with other believers in our life. God, may, may, may your name be always on our lips, regardless of where we are. Father, I pray for those who are currently right now enduring some kind of loss or setback or wound or trouble or hardship in any capacity. God, I know your heart is not to just minimize, Father, but your heart grieves when your children suffer. Father, would you be the healer that mends us? Lord, for those who are are ready for more, God, may we be reminded of of your call, of your mission, that we not overcomplicate things, but God, that we just talk about you, that we'd experience and be reminded again of the joy of new life. We thank you that you turn murder into a miracle sorrow and a joy. Lord, we ask that you do it here and now in our lives, in our communities, in our city, in our nation, Father, in our world. Your church is alive and well. God, we just want to be a part of that winning team. We want to play our role. We want to run the play. We want to do our part. So God, here we are, use us. Broken, (laughs) hurting, in process, still a little messy, but God, use us. That we would find true joy in the beauty and the gift of offering your new life. God, you're so good. You're so good. Thank you for the joy in serving you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Crossroads Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Crossroads, please visit lincolncrossroads.com.